to the third wheel. This is the first episode of The Fires of Heaven, and also the first episode with me and Bjorn in our new house. Ooh! Yeah, that was the voice of Jesse. Hi, I'm Jesse. And also in this house is... Bjorn. Hello, this is Bjorn. We really screwed up the order on this one. That's okay. Po buddies, nerfect. And speaking of, we've been gone for like two months because we bought a house and then moved. Apologies for the echo, it will be fixed. But we're all learning, right? Yeah. Today we're going to take it slow. We're just going to go through the first few chapters. You know, just four chapters that take 140 pages. There's a prologue, but yes. Sure. Uh, Taking it extremely slow is the consistent pace of Wheel of Time until the last two chapters of any given book. I will try to keep the comparisons to Brando Sandoz's books to a minimum, but I do have a couple in my notes. At least we're all on the same plane of reference at this point, though. For the most part, yes. I don't think we really have anything to say except let's do it. Well, now we start with prologue, the first sparks fall. And we start with worst girl. Elida Doavrini Arroyhan fingered the seven striped stole on her shoulders on the day she was the worst. <laughs> That's every day. Thank you. Yes, it's every day. Well, she probably plays with it a lot. I forgot how much he puts into describing, and so there was that whole paragraph just describing her and the way her eyes were, and the way that someone might notice if they were noticing, but no one was. It's like, all right, narrator, thanks for warming us up there. A whole paragraph about worst girl. Yeah, I mean, there's a chapter later where Rand is like brooding, looking out over a balcony for three pages, then turns around and there was a meeting going on the whole time. Yeah, like, I, when I was doing notes for that chapter, it was straight up, like, I think I scrolled through, like, half the chapter and then made one bullet point that was like, here's the note, the Shido's suck. But we'll get to that in, like, five minutes, because there's not a lot to talk about. Yeah, this is sort of a catch-up chapter, but, uh... I mean, the whole section is like a catch-up, which is good, because we kind of needed a catch-up. We've been away from Wheel of Time for, like, four or five months, not that long. Well, it feels like it. But it's been forever. Anyway, this chapter establishes a problem that I have going forward in this series, in that there are too many Aes Sedai. Yeah. Uh, and the problem isn't that there's too many, it's that they all have names. <laughs> yeah, you should just say the white Aes Sedai on Elida's side, or the green Aes Sedai on the rebel's side, because every now and then, later in the series, you'll have like five Aes Sedai in one place, and they're from different groups, and I cannot remember, because I'm supposed to know all their names. Also, all their names start with S. Mm -hmm. I understand that it made sense narratively to split them, except for the reds and the blues, but also, like, boy, it would have just been easier to be like, these colors went this way, these colors went that way, and then only describe people that aren't hyper-important by the color that they're wearing and let you fill that in. Yeah, I ain't keeping track of all that. Well, luckily I have in the other room the huge, like, so in the back of every book is the glossary that's like, I don't know, 15 or 20 pages of 
uh, descriptions of stuff. I have the one that's like a thousand pages and is just everything. Like every named character has at least a paragraph or two. Every event, every place, like the ones for main characters like Rand and Perrin and such are like four or five pages of here's every single thing that they did. It's very useful, but gosh, you could probably excise like two thirds of that book. I mean, it's also not useful for someone who isn't trying to get spoiled on the whole series. That's true. It's useful for me, who's read the whole thing and needs to remember, who is this character? Check your completed reading privilege. Yeah, how's your reading going, by the way, Jesse? Uh, I've left the last hour of Path of Daggers audiobook unlistened to for around three months. Yeah. I don't even remember what the end of Path of Daggers is, but I don't remember that book being that bad. Nothing happens. Anyways. Exposition that you don't actually care about. Why would you say that? And These then books at the have none of end, that. there'll be suddenly a realization. Oh no, gosh, I need to finish this chapter. Oh God, it's the climax and everything happening at once. That's what's Well, going. I mean, the main problem with Path of Daggers is that Matt is in a coma for the whole book. Oh, right. You need your comic characters. He's the only redeeming quality of the series. Perrin, well, you might be in the part where Perrin's bad. He gets better later. Anyways, we're on this chapter of this book. Yeah, we'll talk about that one in like four years when we get to that. So anyway, Elida's in her study... With some named Aes Sedai who don't matter. And one other named Aes Sedai that does matter. Yeah, uh, whatever her name is. Alviarin. Starts with an A. Alviarin. Uh, all I remember about this specific conversation is that Elida's super tilted every time she thinks about Suan. Well, also because they're, the Aes Sedai are having conversations without her. She isn't... Uh, being the mother overlord of them all. Yeah. All the sisters are just talking and doing their own thing and making their own collective decisions. And they all decide that it's done and are going to leave without even addressing her. And even if she's like a token puppet put up by the uh, white cloak with the name that we are supposed to care about. Not a white cloak. <laughs> it, it, is, well, she's a white Aja sister, but white cloaks are something else. Oh, my apologies. She's wearing a white cape thing of the witches. Um, it might be in a literal sense a white cloak, but she is not a white cloak. In fact, the white cloaks' cloaks aren't entirely white. Don't worry. Whatever. Anyway, yeah, I was considering whether it was worth putting a note in here about, like, the subtlety of... Suwon commands even when spoilers for a couple chapters from now when she's like down in the dirt and she doesn't even have the ability to channel she's just naturally like that whereas well I already forgot her name Elida is like throwing tantrums to try and get people to listen to her but it feels like so textual that it's not yeah. subtext <laughs> It's pretty right up there. Elida needs to take some Six Sigma classes. She just needs some motivational speaking seminars. She needs to get her hands on some project management software so she knows where everyone's at. So she can improve her networking capabilities. Synergy. 
I hate my job. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jesse got a new job. He gets to use words like synergy and networking. Build your I, brand? I avoid that as much as possible. Anyway, we're talking about this book. So an accepted shows up and is like, hey, Patton Fane, this upstanding human being is here <laughs> to see you. And Elida and Alviarin are like, that seems fine to me. Uh, literally, this seems like a guy I can trust. I liked in the description of Patton Fane, I talked about before how I liked that he sort of slips in and out of accents. But in this bit of Patton Fane point of view, we get him slipping in and out of trying to be grandiose and then like hunching and flinching whenever Elida speaks. Yeah, like his body language is completely going back and forth. I noticed that too. He's a very bad boy, but it's kind of fun to see everybody like not realize that he or like they understand that he's a bad boy, but they're like, he's a useful bad boy. Yeah, this just seems like a regular guy that I don't like and not this is like this man is tainted a blight on reality. (laughs) Like literally in universe is a third force. One thing we sort of skimmed over that I thought was kind of important. I don't know if they had established what Elida's position was on what they need to do with Rand, but she essentially explains here that she feels that the only way to get him to survive until Tarman Gaiden is to capture him, shield him, and put him in a cage until it happens. Yeah, put him in. When you think about it, a cage is kind of like a box. The Rand box. So yeah, kind of just need to shield him and put him in a box for a while. So Rand doesn't want that. We'll get to it. No, Rand, noted non-believer of shoving people in boxes, Rand Althor. So the main thing with the end of the conversation with Fane is that he senses the presence of the horn and the dagger. And he's like, I gotta get me some of that. Looking out the window, Mandalorian, I gotta get one of those, looks at Dagger. Uh, we then cut to Ravine, who is, reminder, one of the Forsaken. He's out and about controlling... So there was a part earlier in the prologue where they were like, don't worry, we have one of our top spies in the palace in Andor. We'll be fine. And then we cut to Ravine like, mind-controlling that spy to pass along the exact information that he wants. I had not caught that transition. Yeah, I mean, it's not, like, one-to-one, but that is, like, they're talking about that spy, and then we cut to him mind-controlling that specific spy. And Lanfear calls him out on it, being like, really? You're, You're doing this with her? And he's like, no, they're children! Yeah. They don't know what they're doing with their powers. Look at this spy. I can control her. It's fine. I mean, he's right. Yeah, that's the thing is like on some level, the Forsaken are definitely right about that. But on the other, they are also like horrendously arrogant. Their hubris is a defining trait. (laughs) Some might say a defining trait of the Forsaken is their hubris. So, yes, he is in Camelin in the palace. He, in case you haven't figured it out by the end of this section. He's Gabriel. He's Gabriel. He's mind-controlling Morgays. So, yes, like you said, Beyond Lanfear shows up. 
and then uh, Grendel and Samael arrive, and the four of them have some evil plotting. They're like, cackle, cackle, I'm so evil. <laughs> I hate you and you hate me, but we hate others more. Yeah. Also, I'm plotting against you, and I know you're plotting against me, but hopefully with, with just the four of us as opposed to all of us, we'll be fine. Except they don't really tell each other what's going on. No, I mean, we don't actually get to see what the plot is. We're just told, like, after the scene transition, we are going to be plotting. And that plot is going to involve, like, point Rand at other Forsaken, get them killed, so yeah. that there are only four of us, and then... And a lot of this is Lanfear trying to uh, set up her story about what happened with Asmodian. Yeah. She's like, that's weird, huh? Yeah, <laughs> crazy how nature do that. So anyway, that chapter finally ends. It didn't feel that long in our description, but oh my god. <laughs> it's like 30 pages. Yeah. It was a long amount of listening to Elida seethe at the disrespect. Seethe. That's a good word. She was seething. She really do, though. Yeah. So that brings us to chapter one, Fanning the Sparks. So I actually enjoyed some of this chapter. Yeah, some of this chapter isn't that bad. Yeah. Mostly it's when it's the three women all talking to each other. It has a bit more going on than most of Robert Jordan's girl talk chapters. Like, they're not just talking how in, about how in love they are with someone, but they're trying to solve a problem, and they have different opinions on how to solve a problem. It's fun. That doesn't sound like the women I know. Where's Matt to help? Yeah. Matt, tell us about how women are. We don't have... Oh, we do have Matt in this section, but it's only for a little bit. Sadly. Anyway, so yes, that is what this chapter starts off about, is uh, Suan, Leanne, Min, and Loghain, uh, at the end of book four, were escaping the tower. They have now made it into Andor. They were hiding out in a barn. Uh, the farmer came out to check on the barn. Loghain basically pushed him over, supposedly stole some money, and the barn got burned, killing the cows in the process of all this happening. Loghain ditched them. Yeah. Loghain bounced, and so now it's just the three women who are all being held. They talk for a bit about what the plan is. Um, Min is basically just freaking out. Leanne actually gets some amount of characterization here, where she's, like, freaking out and desperately trying to... I mean, she's hiding the freak out, but she's, like, desperately hiding the... Um, Hiding that behind trying to find something to keep her going. Yeah. Um, she's, I thought it was really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, because, like, the whole thing is, I mean, she, she's she been stilled, so it's basically, like, your entire life purpose is gone, but now she's going back to her roots, and she's like, I, I knew that I couldn't be a merchant's daughter, but my mom taught me lots of things, and all the cool ladies around me also taught me things. And I'm a little, it's a little late to start doing this now, but maybe this will give me something to hold on to, to keep myself, like, steady. And yeah, I think it's kind of cool, because, like, there's been a lot of characterizations of, I don't know what women are like! <laughs> but, I mean, to actually have seduction brought up as a thing that, like, women teach each other, and it's seen as a positive thing, as opposed to a, I'm gonna steal your man! It's like, 
a way of surviving. And I liked that. Like, that was the line that made me think that this scene was more nuanced than most of Robert Jordan's Girl Talk chapters was when Leanne says to Suwon, I will stay with you, but it isn't enough. And that's sort of like the clear dividing line between them, that they're both committed to this mission, but that's enough to keep Suwon going, like, as an entire human being, but it isn't enough for Leanne. And that's characterization. That's what we in the business call a character. Yeah. Also, it's worth noting that Suwon's plan is finding a gathering. It gets brought up like in one line and never brought up again. Like we're sort of like, where are they going? What are they looking for? And it's only mentioned once and very in passing. Yeah, that's a great question. Bion, what is that? Because I like obviously can't read it without knowing what it is. I was like, why are you looking for a gathering of Aesodai? That seems silly. Interesting. Well, like, didn't they just get stilled and kicked out? I mean, who's to say that the various Aes Sedai power faction politics, like we saw in the prologue, they have eyes and ears everywhere, even if those eyes and ears are compromised. Like, why would you decide to go to another potential power source where you don't even know if they trust you? Wow, sounds like you've put more thought into it than maybe some people in this scene. Anyway... We'll get, we'll get there later in this book. The thing that I was going to say about the scene of Leanne practicing the seduction, um, like you said, Bion, is like not only like she is also she's practicing it in the like in the shed before they get taken out. So like not only is she applying the makeup and stuff, but she's actively like practicing hand gestures and uh, facial expressions to go along with it. And then later on, when we get to see it, like Bryn reflecting on what happened, um, he kind of has the like, I know you're playing me, but I'm going to let you try. Uh, Yeah, I thought it was just interesting. Certainly more interesting than, like you said, Jesse, these scenes usually end up being, which is uh, women, silly, men, (laughs) dumb. Well, I mean, everyone in this series is dumb. So maybe that's just a symptom of that. That's true. So the other thing I wanted to pull out before they get out of the shed is there's a specific line where Min thinks about how tired she's getting of Suan <laughs> making fishing metaphors. And it's like, thank you, Min. You've done me a great service on this day. I had that one highlighted as well. Uh, so they eventually get out of the shed. Uh, and it's Garth Bryn, the ex-captain of the guard for Morgays, who I don't remember if we actually saw him getting sent away, just... It was just mentioned that it had happened. Yeah, that he's like on the outs because uh, she's so taken with Gabriel. So actually a lot of stuff like happened between books, between four and five. And we're supposed to pick up on it like, sir... Sir, you spent so many words describing all these things I don't care about, and now I'm supposed to put together the puzzle pieces? It has been months since I read Sledger Book. I'm not interested in rereading it. <sighs> yeah, like, three how things... Long, how long was the gap between Shadow Rising and the Fires of Heaven? Like, publishing-wise? Oh, publishing-wise? I don't know. You should look that up while I talk about it. Because there's three... 
plot threads that we pick up during this, really. There's uh, Elida in the tower, there's the women in Andor, and there's Rand in the wastes. And, like, Elida in the tower, we already saw the interesting part, which is Suan getting deposed. We don't need to see, like, the buildup of Elida getting angrier. The women in Andor, like, that would be an interesting scene to see, not the women, but, uh, like, Bryn getting sent away would be, like, I would like to read that uh, scene of what happens when he is finally summoned to Morgay's and Gabriel is standing there, like, clearly mind-controlling her as she sends him away and, like, What's, what are the reactions of the people in the room? Like, what are the reactions of the guards? I sure wish I got to see that specific scene. It's like season eight of Game of Thrones. Tell them, Bran. Tell them the important backstory that these characters would have opinions on. Cut away. Literally life-changing. We'll come back to that later. Uh, and then... I'm still mad about season eight of Game of Thrones, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. Also, um, these books were coming out pretty much every year at this point. Yeah, uh, only slowed down impressive. later. Yeah, uh, they slowed down later, but for the first, like, six or seven, I think, he was doing them pretty quick. And then, like, Rand in the Waste, like, you could take it or leave it. It might be interesting to see the Aiel moving into Roideon, but, like, I don't know. There's just three things that happened, and, like... One of them I could leave, one of them I would very much like to see, and then the third, depending on how it was written, might be interesting. Anyway, the women are in Andor, and Bryn is running their trial. So Leanne tries her seduction. It looks like it really doesn't work, but then later in Bryn's head, he's like, it was absolutely working. <laughs> um, but he knew it was working, so she has like another layer to get to to where she's at the point where people don't realize she's doing it. Yeah, like, she needs to be better at it, and also needs to, like, even if they know that it's happening, she needs to be better at it, because he was thinking, like, not only am I aware that she's doing it, she's also not doing it super well. But apparently, not well is still good enough for him. Well, I mean, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't sway him. He was just like, alright, she's worth looking at, I guess. I suppose. Yeah. Baby's first subjection. Yeah. Min is like concerned that it's not going to work, but Brain sees something in Suon because she's so like still has sort of the mantle of the Omerlin in her spirit. Bow down to me. Yeah. Brain's into it. He's like, I got to get some of that. <laughs> uh, so they swear this big oath to serve him. Yeah. This was sort of freaking out. Yeah, this was sort of confusing because a lot of this chapter acts like there's an inherent power to oaths. I'm like, this isn't the Stormlight Archives, but I don't. Maybe this is just a Min thing. She says that she had been taught by her mother that breaking oaths is like murder. So maybe this is just a Min characterization thing and not something that everyone would see the same way. Although she, descri she describes the oath that Suwon makes as an oath that only a dark friend would break. And then they immediately break it. Yeah, I think the thing... Well, again, like, in Suwon's mind, they're not breaking it. They're just putting it off. Uh, 
classic Aes Sedai. Yeah, I mean, Suan is explicitly, like, doing the thing that people hate Aes Sedai for doing, which is manipulating oaths. Um, yeah, I think it's just a thing in, like, 20, 25 years ago high fantasy writing that, like, the good characters don't break their oaths, only the evil characters do. I don't see a ton of that messaging in the rest of the series, which is why I was confused. We literally get Rand hiding things from the audience for, like, full books. That's true. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it is just a Min thing. Maybe. Luckily, I was just confused. Min doesn't have to say uh, that many oaths. I just feel like Min is suffering along this. She's just like, why am I here? I hate this. How dare I ever even look at Rand? I didn't ask for this. I'm so tired of these fish comparisons. <laughs> Leanne, what are you doing? What is this whole flirting? I'm so... <sighs> I mean, it is a decent question. Why is she bothering? Also, Min, being Min is kind of suffering. <laughs> she also acknowledges in this chapter... That she's literally met Rand once. No, she's met him twice. She met him once in Barillon, and then once at the end of book two. Uh, when she oh, was... Oh, yeah. When she was in bed with him, and Egwene... And first, Lanfear walks in, and then leaves, and then Egwene walks in, and leaves, and Min's like, this is fine. I forgot about that scene. How could you forget that pivotal scene... So they're being trans. The women after the trial are being transported to uh, Bryn's mansion, and luckily, question mark, uh, Logan shows up and takes control of the cart again. And he's like, also this is like the most we've seen Logan talk at all. Yeah, like he is speaking in complete sentences, which is strange for him. Yeah, I was like, why is he relevant again? I forgot. And then I realized that it was the guy who was like false dragoning. But then I was like, why do I care about you? Yeah, he's false dragoning. The reason you're supposed to care is because like the not the actual author insert, because that's loyal. But like the author has a character who points at a sign that says foreshadowing. And she's pointing back and forth between Logan and the sign. Like, every time he's on screen. Yeah, Min has a vision of that he has glory to come. Yeah. Perhaps above all men. Yeah. Uh, having finished the series, Logan's a pretty chill guy. <laughs> he sure does have glory to come. Chill and good, False Dragon. Chill and good- noted chill and good guy, Logan. <laughs> Does he also get put in a box? No, there are no boxes that can hold Logan, the Chad. We saw him in a box in the first book. Well, that was like a big box. It, the <laughs> box had breathing holes. That's better than Rand got. Tyler, that has not happened yet. It's fine. Rand gets a harem, so whatever for him. Yeah, Rand can suffer any indignity. He gets a magic harem. Anyway... There's a scene that feels like it's missing between... Because, like, the first time I read it, I was definitely a little thrown by the transition from, hey, Logan's got control of the cart. The four of us are back on the road. To Bryn, like, apparently days later. Yeah, it's not immediately clear that he knows what's happened. Yeah, it... 
there's no transition between them at the end of the trial, them on the cart, and them on the cart to Bryn days later. Like, it kind of feels like... Yeah, you do have to sort of backtrack and be like, oh, okay. Yeah, it sort of feels like it's a description of a 20-minute span of time, but I think it's like three or four days. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, he's like, I shouldn't be running off to chase these women, but one, gotta get me some of that Suwon. Two... Her name is Mara Tomanis. Of course. And her blue eyes. Her... Staring back defiantly. Her defiant blue eyes. They're like the cover of a romance novel. Yeah. Like the book six cover. But then also, like, he's just super bored running the house. So he's He's, like... He's literally been put out to pasture. Yeah. Like, he has nothing better to do than take 20 other guys with him and go chase... For all he knows, three women. <laughs> like, yeah, I think you're bringing enough people. They're criminals, though. Yeah. Oath breakers, even. They must be dark friends if they would break that oath. So maybe he does need 20 people with him. Also, nearing the end of his section, he gets some news from someone saying that the Stone of Tear has fallen and an Aielman has taken the sword that is not a sword. And it's like, that has happened literally a book and a half ago. Yeah, like... News travels slow here. Yeah. But sometimes it goes really fast. Yeah, like going back to the thing we talked about in like the first book where it's interesting how news like gets distorted and takes so long to travel the world. Like, literally... Every time somebody talked in this book about news from somewhere else, I had to remind myself that span reads didn't exist because they're such a core part of Stormlight. And uh, I think I forgot to say it on air, but uh, I'm caught up with Stormlight and uh, books are pretty good. It's unfair to compare the end of Oathbringer to the start of Fires of Heaven. (laughs) If I was going to. It would not be a uh, very gentle comparison that I would make. Anyways, let's transition to this total rando POV. Yeah, she's meaningless, but she arrives in Camelin and she is in I, the running to be queen of the garbage pile. I literally had to like check the wiki to figure out if we knew her, which we kind of did. She had appeared once. Yeah, she appears in like... An offhandedly mentioned side plot from a side character that's happening in, like, a diversion part of book three. She's uh, one of the nobles that ran sort of ousts from Tyr, I think. Yeah, but also, like, when... um, I think when Tom is talking about manipulating some of the nobles against each other and, like, letters written in the handwriting of one of the nobles, like, finding its way to another that sounds like somebody's cheating on somebody else. It was her. Yeah, I think he's talking about her. Anyway, truly does not matter. We just get to see Morgay's being enthralled. Yeah, she is enthralled. She is wearing completely different clothing. She talks differently. She acts differently. This is kind of what Ravine is doing to her. He's like, finally, it's all coming together. And then he gets this rando noble lady to confess, Loki wanting to murder, or have murdered her husband. Very high key, (laughs) wanting to murder. Which, like, you're a noble. Of course you want to murder your husband. This isn't surprising. 
You're not a noble, right? No. Okay. <sighs> no, but like, why would I be surprised by some noble lady wanting to kill her husband? Um, well, remember, good people follow oaths and don't kill their husbands. Only uh, dark friends do that. I mean, he's a noble. He probably deserves it. Please continue. It didn't matter. I didn't care about this person. There's a meme that goes like that, right? Yes. People don't do that. Only some things do that. Yeah, it's uh, My Hero Academia. Never go for this. Only this. Or always go for this. Never this. Only heroes do that. Or only villains do that. Excuse me. That's what it's from. Uh, So anyway, the chapter ends with her getting mind controlled and Gabriel, comma, Ravine being like, gosh, I'm so evil. Is this NTR? Whoa. I mean, you're not wrong. Uh... Is this war? Is is it? I think we've been reading different stories if this is what you think war is. Certainly not Voranism. <clears throat> Thank you. <laughs> that wasn't even the joke you thought I was making. Anyway. Book, uh, well, not no, book two, no, chapter two. Voran from Brando Sandoz. Yeah, Voranism. Yeah, I know yeah. what you were referencing. Oh. Not just vor as in the strange kink. I know. <laughs> okay. Well, Jesse was talking about the strange gang. I know. Is there something you'd like to share with the class, Jesse? No. Chapter two. Chapter two. Beyonce it. Roydian. Well. There is no right way to say it, so I'm all right. Arhuidin. There's no right way to say it, so I'm all Roydian. <laughs> Roydine. No, it's pronounced Royd. <laughs> I've listened to the audiobook for this book. Michael Kramer pronounces it Roydion, and that's good enough for me. Rand is in Roydion. Yes, again, the first half of this chapter can be summarized with the Shido's suck. He's going to get all of the other clans and take them back to the wetlands. Moraine comes in to talk to Rand about- Oh, we just skipped like 30 pages. (laughs) I mean, what happens in those 30 pages? It basically just reflects how much Rand has traumatized the Aiel, and it's creating a lot of factions, and some people have thrown down their spears, but others are super anti, and that one guy who hates Rand, I'm like, I'm the Dragon Reborn, which makes- Cooladin? Yeah. Not Cooladin. He's not very Cooladin. Uncooladin. Yeah. And I just have no idea how anyone's going to believe him. Why would anyone claim to be the Dragon Reborn that's just asking for future bad things to happen to you? Because you get glory and you just hope that people follow you for the glory. Anyway, yes, we did skip like 30 pages. I did totally forget that this is the first time that we hear about a bunch of the Aiel are like throwing down their spears and either going to die in the desert or they're going to join the Shido because Kooladin is like, no, Rand is lying. We're going to be the most Kooladin group you've ever seen. Yeah, or they're swearing themselves Guy Shane. Yeah. And like, I, that was the one thing that I really took from this section is just that in reading the last book, it might not have really occurred to you why it was such a big deal that Rand revealed that secret at the end of the, the summit meeting. But the layers of cultural consequence is actually pretty impressively constructed by Jordan here. I can give him credit for that. Like, Rand keeps on realizing things. It's like, oh, all these Aiel swear themselves Guy Shane if they break an oath, and now they've realized that their entire heritage is about breaking oaths. Yeah, and like, 
before they picked up weapons, they were just basically like permanently Guy Shane. That's that's a good point. There's like a lot of world building that Jordan has clearly thought through. I think that's the thing is like I never have a problem with the like world building or the plot, just the pace at which he has that stuff play out. Yeah, there's good stuff in there if you look for it. Also, speaking of good stuff in there, Rand does his Taviran thing to make two warlords that hate each other be Sundere for each other instead. Yeah, they start blushing and calling each other Baka. <laughs> Pretty much. Speaking of it, because I will forget later, he is definitely like passively doing the Taviran thing of other character, like the marriage thing that happened before when they were chasing him in book three and they were like, it's so weird. Everyone in the village got married on the same day. Like he is passively doing that to the maidens of the spear around him at all times. They're mentioning that like one or two per day are getting married. Just a thing to keep on the back of your mind. Rand got a fertility in marriage. Kinda. So we eventually get to Moraine coming into the room. Uh, and she is showing him the seals, and, or the one seal that she has, and how weak it's becoming. Yeah, and Rand says, come to think of it, though, he did not know how those other three had really been broken. It's like, neither do I. It's just sort of a thing at the end of every book, Moraine's like, hey, I found this broken seal wherever the climax was. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's like the Dark One kind of presses out and it breaks, and sometimes it's just like, literally, they're so brittle that if you drop it, it will explode and... We grow one-seventh of the way closer to releasing Satan. Good job, people. You did it again. The pressure's rising. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's kind of what they're saying, right? Is like, if it's in the bottom of a box somewhere and somebody doesn't know what they have, and, like, they drop the box, then, like, like, if we get to that point, he could just be released and nobody would know what had happened. Like, it doesn't even have to happen by the forces of darkness working together at this point. Just ignorance. Do you think the Dark One is a Tibiran? Whoa. Jesse's getting real big brain. Is there only ever one Dark One in all the cycles of all these things? Yes, that's what they say, is that in all layers of reality, simultaneously, the Dark One exists. He is separate from the pattern. That's gonna be a lot of work for the Dark One. Uh, time doesn't exist to him. He just is omnipresent. Uh, but he is, so like metaphysically, the way that reality works is that in theory, the creator and the dark one both exist separate from the pattern, which is spun by the wheel into the age lace in like infinity patterns simultaneously and in infinity layers because every possible permutation of reality exists as a different layer of the age lace, but they're both separate from it. So they can touch anywhere in the pattern at any point, but the creator is gone. So the creator just left the wheel spinning, and so all permutations of all realities simultaneously exist, and then the dark one just has like a wall between him and the pattern, and that's what the seals are, is they are the wall, and so as they break, he is able to get closer and closer and start to touch the pattern, which I think they mentioned uh, at the start of book four, mm -hmm. when all the weird shit goes down, where, like, Matt's playing cards come to life and try and kill him. Oh, yeah. That's, like, 
the dark one is able to get closer and like closer to touching the pattern. And so by him being closer, he is like warping reality into becoming more evil. Anyway, mumbo jumbo. Mumbo jumbo. I think the like metaphysical layer of the series is way more interesting than virtually anything that happens. But we don't get deep into that until like Brando Sando takes over. Also, Moraine sort of tells him that he should be more aggressively going after the Forsaken. And she says that you could have faced three or four, or perhaps all nine, if you hadn't left Kalimdor in tier. The truth is you're running. You don't really have a plan. Not a plan for the last battle. You run from place to place, hoping that in some way everything will come out for the best. Hoping because you do not know what else to do. She literally just summarized the next five books. And Rand goes, nuh-uh. <laughs> I'm Nuh-uh. not. Five books. He'll literally just run around doing random things. And at the end of the book, he's like, huh, I should kill a Forsaken by the end of this book and do it. Yeah, I mean, like I joked earlier, until the last two chapters of any given book, at which point all of the plot of the book happens at once. Um. But also, he talks to Asmodian later, and, like, the uh, Choedan Kal that he still has is wildly stronger than Kalendor. Moraine saying three or four or maybe nine with Kalendor is, like, absolutely nine. Maybe could walk up and fight the Dark One right at this second with the Choedan Kal in hand. Like, if you handed the female one to Nenev, maybe the two of you could go and face him right now also worth noting asmodian's been in the corner plucking on his harp the whole time uh anytime rand is on screen asmodian is also on screen unless it's specifically noted that rand is alone he's been a court bard he's doing his role yeah right wink 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 so anyway yes moraine is talking to him about that and she's pressing him hard he says something to the effect of like why are you listening to me now you never have before. Why are you like pushing me like this, but also kind of letting me take control on some stuff? And she says something to the effect of, I won't always be around to help you. You need to be, you know, I'm trying to guide you into growing into the role that you need to have. And it's like death flag foreshadowing, foreshadowing, foreshadowing. Beyond sees it. Yeah, Beyond's read books before. <laughs> Um, and then also, doesn't she smack him with magic? Yeah, night? yeah, she smacks him with magic, and Rand's like... That seems more like Egwene's speed. Yeah, and then Egwene's like, wasn't me. So it turns out that Moraine is getting a little aggro with him. Which, he deserves it. Yeah, that's fair. And also, last thing is, Asmodian is like, let me serve my lord some wine in a goblet. And then Rand's like, what are you doing? Well, it's because he was serving it magically. Yeah. Yeah, like he floats it over to him. But then we're reminded, as we were reminding in the previous chapters with the Forsaken, dude magic can't see lady magic and lady magic can't see dude magic. There's a lot of weird dude lady stuff in this chapter. Yeah. Um, The one thing before they, before Egwene leaves and before we move on to chapter three, is um, we continue to hit this beat of Egwene uh, shipping Rand and Elaine. Like, super hard. Avienda also does it. Everybody's like, 
why won't Rand and Elaine just make out already? And Rand's like, but the letters! He's like, but the letters? Egwene, you haven't read the letters. Why doesn't he just have her read the letters? Because. Maybe he has. I think he did, actually. Maybe. But I think that's the thing is like, the ladies were all present when Elaine was writing the letters. And so I think to them, they're like, these letters make perfect sense. But also it's a thing of like, the ladies write the letters and it makes perfect sense to them, but the boy just can't figure it out. <laughs> Men and women can't talk to each other. Yeah. Magically known, they can't understand each other. Yeah. Anyway, Disgusting. can you tell I'm very happy with a mature man and woman relationship in Stormlight and it makes everything that happens in this book worse? Wow, you're really not doing so hot with not bringing up Stormlight. I thought I was going to be the one to struggle with that. No, like, this is me doing very well with not bringing up Stormlight nearly as much as I want to. He's very salty. <laughs> this is the good version of this podcast. <laughs> For the listeners at home. Like, I haven't even really brought it up, have I? No. No. See, I can complain. But you've only comparison. read the one book. There's like... Three. And I, I remember like chunks of Mistborn. Yeah. The chunks of world building I found fascinating. Yeah, but there's like other books. We'll read them all on air. We're doing it live. We're doing it live. Chapter three, Pale Shadows. Uh, yes, Rand is yelling at Asmodian. Asmodian reminds us, I think we've already heard the mechanics of linking channelers. Um, you can have a bunch of women and then they can't go beyond 13 without a man. But you can have... And no men can link without women. It's a whole thing. Yeah. I think you have to have 13 women to have 13 men. But point is, like, you would need 26 people in total to make the, like, greatest circle possible. There were a couple of details here that I thought were kind of fun. Rand's like, I would rather have a different teacher, but I would have to find a false dragon who can channel that doesn't want to kill me. Yeah, and also, like, Rand doesn't know how to shield men on purpose. Because, like, Asmodian can't show him. He shielded the... I don't remember if he shielded the women at the start of book four, uh, Egwene and Elaine, or if he just picked them up. I think he, I think he did. Yeah, I think he did. Um, anyway, the other detail that I liked was that Asmodian says that Lanfear wants... Rand to live this time, but this time she wants to be the stronger one. So she's like handicapping his training, but wants him to be strong enough to survive. Yeah, because I mean, Asmodian could be stronger, but not able to kill Rand. If Rand is uh, supposedly the apex of the ability to wield the one power, then like... There's probably a gradient between where he is and where Asmodian could be left with a shield. Anyway. Asmodian also just drops the idea that men are just stronger than women in channeling. Yeah, because men are just stronger than women at having muscles. Bro, it's just biology. Like, I don't know why Common you're fighting sense. I mean, like, to be fair, Bion, you have brought up specifically for yourself that like having testosterone 
makes the muscles bigger. It allows you to build it quicker and sooner. Right. So like... I mean, it's not controversial to talk about, like, biological strength that way. It's just funny that he's like, duh, of course men are stronger than women right. channel. I. Yeah, that's what I was going to link it back to is, like, because men have more testosterone, they're able to use the one power better <laughs> than women and their silly estrogen. <laughs> like, duh. Wow, people talk about this magic system like it's a hard magic system that makes sense. Yeah, that makes me laugh. I mean, it's like a harder magic system than like Lord of the Rings, but it's not like especially hard. I wove together spirit and fire and earth and that healed him. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is like, I mean, I think the level of hardness of the magic system is like you know generally what the powers do alone and you can say that someone who is stronger has more finesse but like beyond that there's a lot of times where people just do something that they didn't know or think of before Nanave is particularly guilty of this later on yeah to be fair that is because Nanave is like the strongest channeler that isn't a forsaken and so, like, there is no one to teach her what she can and can't do. Like, she's literally just capable of things that nobody else is. So when she does something, there is some amount of, like, nobody even could consider that this was possible because nobody had the amount of control necessary to do it. Except then she teaches people. Anyways, we'll get to it. Yeah. Yeah. The only other two things in here is one, as Modian says, when, uh, when Rand loses and the Dark One is free... His plan is to kill himself the second that he is able, because now that he's severed from the Dark One, the hope is that he can just die. Uh, but if he gets caught by the baddies, he's gonna get he's gonna get got. And then also, there's a part in here where he's talking to Ismodian about this because not that Rand knows, uh, but back in the prologue when Ravine was using the uh, when he was using Sidene. He was aware of the taint, but his oaths to the dark kept him safe from it. And Rand specifically brings up, is there any way to either cleanse the taint or keep yourself safe from it? And Asmodian's like, nah, bro, not happening. Would taint affect the uh, Forsaken? That's that's what I'm saying, is like, Ravine, because of his oaths to the dark, can use Sidene without uh, it affecting his mind. Okay, so he it's it's still like tainted greasy oil water of magic. He is, except, except Ravine's like mm, delicious grease. Yeah, there's like yeah, one he's like mm, delicious grease, but two like his oaths are like an extremely thin layer between the power itself and the taint. So like he's aware that the taint is there, but he's protected from it. Mm. So we then cut to Matt. Who's hanging out drinking with some hype. What? I said hype, hype, hype. Yeah. Uh, So Matt is hanging out with Aiel and throwing knives while blindfolded. Sounds safe. Yeah, he's like, I'm a god. And then they all decide to never gamble with him ever again. Yeah. But in the polite Aiel way. I like how he's singing a song where he's like, huh, I guess no one's heard this song in like 500 years, but I just know it. 
Yeah. And also he is thinking about how glad he is that he isn't randomly speaking in the old tongue as he randomly speaks in the old tongue. But that's our mat. So all of the Aiel disperse, except for this one lady who's hanging out, I think, next to a fountain. And Matt's like, hey. There was a little bit where Matt talks to Rand in between. Uh, I think that happens after. Because at first he goes over to... Yeah, Yeah, uh, he goes over to talk to the lady and she's like, hey. And he's like, hey. Uh, (laughs) And then, yes, uh, Matt gets diverted by Rand showing up. But Rand doesn't respond to Rand. Yeah, he doesn't respond to Rand. He does respond to Luz Theron, which, harsh. (laughs) Uh, And then, yeah, Matt is like, hey, uh, when we get back across to the other side of uh, the Dragon Wall, I'm going to... I'm going to bail. Yeah. Uh, I got to... Listen, dude, I got to (laughs) go. And Rand's like, do what you have to do. And then... Matt goes back to hang out with that chick and woohoo, flirting, yay! One thing to note is uh, the uh, maidens that are surrounding Rand, some of them notice Matt trying to get Rand's attention and they just kind of turn back around. Mm-hmm. And one of them looks particularly angry at him. And Matt's like, I don't know why she's so mad. I compared her to the prettiest little flower ever. I don't know why she's mad at me. Women are so confusing. Yeah. I mean, for him, that's Aiel are confusing, not women are confusing. I mean, it's, yeah. Although it is kind of women are confusing because he constantly does the thing. Um, I also listened to all of uh, Brando Sando's lectures from the last year of his teaching, and he specifically talks about Matt as his example of, like, Matt constantly does the thing of he has the smile that always works on women, and it doesn't work even a single time. So, like, he doesn't think he's confused by women, but he is also confused by women. He's also got to make he's also got to make sure that any woman he has a relationship with doesn't know what the daughter of the nine moons means. Yeah, like, I gotta check to see if you're cool. <laughs> and then this lady's like, "Nah, but I know some other things we could do under the moonlight." It's like, wow, good for her. Yeah, you can almost <laughs> see the like steam come out of Matt's ears and his little beanie hat with the propeller on it like start going and fly off his head like it's so cartoonish the specifics of what they talk about anyway it's completely irrelevant but also during this Matt has a thought about the Aiel and looking into their eyes and like gambling with them about how much he doesn't like being around light-eyed people. He wants to get back to where there's no light eyes. Everybody's just a dark eyes like him. And it's like, did, uh, when exactly did Brando Santa read this? A long time ago. Anyways, we have one more chapter that has nothing in it. Yeah, uh, chapter four, Twilight. Rand is babysat by the maidens. Nobody cares, including Rand. But it is kind of fun how all of them interact with him and accept him in their own way. And it's not necessarily related to age because he's talking about how some of the older maidens will treat him like a brother and some of the younger maidens, younger even than him, will treat him like a mother might treat a kid. Yeah, and it does, like, I don't mean to gloss over it in the... um, Like, there is good character stuff in here, and it does definitely sell you on him, like, 
him having individual relationships with each one of the maidens. Like, you get the sense that in his head, he knows their names and has specific interactions with each one. He knows a lot of women's names. Yeah, yeah, he's really good at remembering them. He practices. Anyway, uh, he eventually makes it up to his room and he just lays down in bed, pants and shoes still on. I feel that. He's a tired boy. He's a tired boy. Uh, But then Avienda shows up and she's like, hey, just a reminder, I ship you and Elaine, not me. Also, I hate you. Also, I hate you. Look at this art I made you. You're one of six people I hate. Yeah. Like, there's no one on this earth that I hate more than you. Anyway, I made you this belt buckle. And Rand's like, where did that necklace come from? I gotta know. Yeah. Not that I care about you or anything, but Baka. They're so dumb. And then Isendra shows up. Remember her? She didn't really exist last book. She was the one that was supposed to make you think that she was Lanfear, but it turns out she was just a regular garbage person. Uh, we get a little cat fight here. Hooray! Don't you just love when the women fight over Rand? No. <laughs> she and Avienda fight over Rand, and then Avienda sends her out, possibly, to be basically killed. Hooray! Or, you know, just beaten beaten but also they mention that like the other person that stole from the Aiel got sentenced to the desert to die yeah like walk out naked into the desert with one water skin so like wondering wondering what's going to happen to Isendra is Avienda sending her out to die and the only reason Asendra didn't die in the first place is because Rand was like, I can't kill women! Yeah, don't kill women. Also, what a, what an appropriate punishment for showing up to a guy's room when he's the only person that didn't, that like stopped you from being executed earlier. Thinking emoji. Also, Avienda doesn't like him, right? She's very soon soon. Uh, which is basically what happens. Isendra leaves, and then Avienda continues to be soon soon, and Rand drifts off to sleep and has pleasant dreams about his harem. <laughs> in, like, it calls out that he has dreams about them in every combination of the three, and it's like, my guy. <laughs> Calm down. Gotta rein it in. Gotta let it out, gotta let it out. Anyway, that's the end of this section. Our sections are going to need to get a little longer if we don't want this book to be 10 episodes. Yeah, I think I plotted it for eight, but looking at how much actually happens, like, it can be less than eight. We could probably knock this bad boy out in like five or six. Yeah, there are some skimmable chapters. Anyways. Anyways, not that... um, Not that it matters to anyone specifically except us, but, like, probably gonna read chapters 5 through, like, 17 for next week. That's, like, 150 pages. We can do it. Um, that is almost 200 pages. It's fine. We also have two weeks to do it. Because, uh, spoilers for people who are listening, depending on when this episode comes out, 
probably not another one for two weeks. This is the last week where Biona and I have our weird schedule, and then we overlap and not promising, but can in theory, we have the same day off every week so we could try and record more regularly. No one has any expectations of us at this point, and that's why we love you and would like you to go to iTunes and leave a review. Oh boy, he did that real good. I hope I hope we get reviews that are like, I've never listened to any part of your podcast except the last five minutes of the last episode. The transition was so good, I had to leave you five stars. And I also had to tweet at you at Wheel Reading, because I found the link in the description. <laughs> Jesse's in like 2030 with how good his segues are. Anyway, I can tell that he's been building it up. Uh, this has been the third wheel. We will move through Wheel of Time at a, not like trying to finish as quick as possible, but a pace that is appropriate for like how much doesn't happen in any given chapter. And then cleansing our palate with Stormlight. Yeah, which is going to have to be slower. I think that's going to just be the plan is like as we back, uh, bounce back and forth. Stormlight or other Brando Sando books, because we also have to read Warbreaker at least, um, are going to be slower because more stuff happens per page. But we'll get to that in like a couple months when that's happening. For now, this has been The Third Wheel. I'm Tyler. I'm Bjorn. And I'm Jesse. And we'll see you next time. Bye.